Hi, I'm Cleo, and this is the podcast on which I use my PhD in English to interpret the songs of Taylor Swift. And thanks to those of you who got in touch about the last episode. I know we all have a lot to ponder when it comes to the 10 minute all too well, and particularly when it comes to that keychain, which I want to follow up on in a second. But before then, I have a bit of listener mail that I want to read out. So Ethan got in touch to talk about the song Today Was a Fairy Tale. And Ethan writes, have you noticed the line, I can't put this down, in Today Was a Fairy Tale? I'm fascinated by this line, as I think it suggests that the narrator is reading a book, which she can't put down, and sharing her internal monologue or thoughts and feelings in response to the book. And Ethan calls this a meditation on reading, on being transported by a work of art. I think that that's a really interesting way of thinking about that song, and I certainly had not really noticed that line, but looking at it now, I think it is a really interesting moment in which Taylor refers to her own life as a story that she's reading, that she can't put down, that she's enthralled by. So thanks to Ethan for writing in about about that song, which is not a song I've really discussed on the podcast. I think it sort of feeds into a lot of things that Meredith and I were discussing in our episode together a few weeks ago on paper and the page. And yeah, if anyone else has any analyses of Taylor Swift they want to write in with, I would very much appreciate hearing them. Anyway, let's talk about the keychain. So Taylor's online store is now selling a fuck the patriarchy keychain, which I think proves very little. After all, her store also sells a wheel run locket, and I don't think that wheel run is what the locket and run supposedly says. The scarf she sells in her store says all too well, which also is not what her scarf says in the song all too well, presumably. So who knows? Anyway, the keychain is marketed as a lyric keychain because it has a lyric from the song on it. We don't know whether it's meant to be a representation of of the keychain mentioned in the song. To what extent, anyway, should we be putting any interpretative pressure on the merchandise marketed alongside this album? This week I want to talk about repetition, liveness, and mechanical reproduction. And fittingly for an episode on repetition, I'm returning to the 10 minute all too well, but specifically to three versions of it that we got in short succession. The short film, of course, the Sad Girl Autumn version, and the film of Taylor singing that version, and Taylor's performance of the song on Saturday Night Live. So we know anyway that Taylor likes to give us different versions of particular songs, the most extreme example being the proliferation of versions of Willow on Evermore. And clearly All Too Well, the 10-minute version, is one of those songs that Taylor returns to. In my last episode, I read this song as being about the unreliability of memory, the invention of different narratives to explain a relationship, a song about lying to yourself about what you remember about someone, and also what they remember about you. And it makes sense, therefore, that it's a song that can be done many different ways. In fact, that seems to ask to be returned to, to be reinterpreted. And in some ways, repeating it keeps its meaning flexible. I kind of feel that way about Willow, too, by the way, which is about the turbulence and upheaval of a constant love, its lyrics remaining open to a number of interpretations. The more that you say, the less I know. Wherever you stray, I follow. I'm begging for you to take my hand, wreck my plans. That's my man. 
If that's a song that claims that every bait and switch was a work of art, it's also a work of art that acts as a bait and switch, telling you it's one thing, then another, depending on whether you listen to the Dancing Witch, Moonlit Witch, or Lonely Witch version. Is this a love song or a breakup song, or like Desdemona's Willow song in Othello, kind of both? Anyway, I don't know about you, but what I choose to be thankful for this week is that Taylor did not run with the whole witch theme after the Willow remixes. That feels like a lucky escape. But anyway, we are straying from our all-too-blunted purpose. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here on the short film, as I think it's been analyzed to death, but I do want to talk about the ending a little bit as a way of representing the performance of the song, albeit extremely metaphorically. Taylor, who plays the older version of the main character, played in the earlier part of the song by Sadie Sink, writes a book titled All Too Well. She is seen at the end of the film reading from the book to an audience that that seems attentive and even moved. And then we sort of zoom out through a lit window and the interior becomes too blurry to see. But a young man walks by who is wearing a scarf, glances in, seemingly sees Taylor and turns away. And this appears to be the character called him, but we don't see his face. Maybe because she couldn't get Jake to come in and play the older version of that character. And then at the end of that film, the snow falls in front of the lit window, which we can't see into again because it's too blurry. Um, And we don't have access anymore to the lit room where stories are being told, the lit room that is also the film itself, which of course is ending. I was trying to think what this reminded me of, and the best I could do was the ending of The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is a French film that's sung through. At the end, two lovers briefly run into each other after many years, then part forever, and the setting is a gas station. The camera slowly backs away, leaving us watching the snow falling in front of this lit interior that we're slowly receding from. also thought of the scene in Citizen Kane where you see snow falling on a cottage and then the camera zooms out and you see it's only a snow globe. definitely this cinematic association between snow and memory that, because I'm far from being a film scholar, is probably extremely obvious. The connections to Citizen Kane do make sense in terms of the idea of holding on to one thing that reminds you of a time of lost happiness, the one real thing you've ever known, a thing that happens in both cases to be related to winter. Uh, I'm struggling not to spoil Citizen Kane, I guess. (laughs) Anyway, please write in if you're a film scholar. I want to know what you see in the all-too-well short film. Is it better or worse than Citizen Kane? Let me know. But what I really want to talk about is this song in performance, which is what we definitely don't see in the short film. In fact, what we do see is Taylor Swift reading from a book called All Too Well as her singing voice is overlaid on top of that. 
And All Too Well in the film, as I said, is the name of a book, not a song. Which is an interesting comment about genre, particularly given that she wrote and directed the short film in which these scenes appear. And film and screenwriting, in general, are genres like the book, like novel writing, that she doesn't usually work in. And the book looks like it's a novel based on the cover, not a work of nonfiction. It reminded me of the 2016 Vintage International edition of Kazuo Ishiguro's The Buried Giant. There are multiple editions of this novel, but I thought immediately of uh, one with a light blue cover and a tree on the front, which is what all too well the book looks like, with the addition of a red scarf tied to a branch, because unlike the autumn leaves, the scarf will never fall away. It's stuck there. Anyway, I wrote this and, in fact, ended up going back to Taylor's store, which is apparently now a vital source of interpretative meaning. And there she's selling a notebook, sort of based on this book, with the cover of this book, that actually says all too well a novel on it. Despite the fact that this is seemingly a blank notebook intended to serve as a diary. But anyway, the fact that this is a novel makes sense, because if we are to read the novel as a mise en abime, as a metaphor for the short film itself, it's clearly a fictionalized reflection on Taylor's life, a fiction based on reality, but in which key details have been changed. I haven't seen that much discussion of sort of the, the novel itself, the novel as an object. If anyone has heard anything or read anything about this, I'd be really interested to hear what other people are saying about it. In general, just based on this novel and on sort of the, the book event that we see, it looks like it's being marketed as literary fiction and the audience does seem to be predominantly female, although it's hard to tell because they're sitting in darkness and the light is falling mostly on Taylor. This final moment in which we see Taylor Swift in this film is sort of a moment of performance, a moment of her performing all too well. Although importantly, we see her performing not as a singer, but as a writer, reading from instead of singing her own work, which makes sense because it sort of foregrounds the written literary aspect of the song. It encourages us to think about it as literature. Let's talk about two moments where we do see her perform the song. Uh, which are her appearance on SNL and the Sad Girl Autumn version of the song. And let's talk about the latter first. So this song and the relationship it's about is tied specifically to the changing of the season. It begins in autumn upstate and it ends in winter in Brooklyn and it hinges on the exact location of winter outerwear. Even the man's face turning red in the third verse seems to take part in the change of seasons, and the way in which his disposition seemingly alters through the song mirrors the inhospitable approach of winter. Autumn is then the brief m moment in which the worst has not happened, in which nature and the love affair have not yet died. It's autumn that's associated with Taylor's marketing around the album, and this becomes very clear uh, in the titling of this version of All Too Well, of course, but also uh, in other ways. For example, her collaboration with Starbucks has made this particularly clear. Uh, Starbucks, for example, is selling a gift card with the quotation Autumn Leaves Falling Down on it, attributed, of course, to Taylor with pictures of Autumn Leaves Falling Down. And there's more, but I don't want to talk about Starbucks because I feel at this point that they are spending enough money on their publicity. Support your local coffee shops. Anyway, Sad Girl Autumn specifically is something that Taylor wants to make happen. And this is sort of an interesting linguistic meme in a way in that... Um, this is kind of a variation on the idea of hot girl summer, which was circulating, you know, 
at the beginning of, of this past summer, of the summer of 2021. Hot Girl Summer is the name of a Megan Thee Stallion song. Maisie Peters then releases a song called Sad Girl Summer. Text the next love goodbye, it's another sad girl song. Flowers on the side of the road, traveling beside each other. No one has the time to never and this is kind of Taylor's take on the emotion plus season linguistic meme. Taylor is, is kind of the expert on autumn in maybe an ironic way. She wrote a post on Tumblr in 2014 that was widely mocked about how much she liked fall because of things like scarves and tights and lattes and, quote, not caring when people make fun of pumpkin-flavored stuff. And she recently sort of brought this up again, again, I think somewhat ironically, as part of the autumnal focus around the the, the November re-release of Red in a TikTok reiterating the things that she likes about fall. This was all part of the Starbucks advertising campaign, too. And to be honest, I find all of this a little tiresome. I think if you interpose the word capitalism for the word autumn here, it all still makes sense. But in terms of the actual version, not surprisingly, the sad girl autumn version is more subdued and has just piano accompaniment. And we see Taylor in a recording studio. We're told this is recorded at Long Pond Studios. And we also see the pianist, Aaron Desner. It's made to seem like the film is old, like there are scratches or imperfections on the, on the film. And it's also sort of filmed from below as if we're sitting in the audience looking up at Taylor, uh, except when it cuts to still photographs seemingly taken in the same place, but from a slightly different angle, uh, which show the other side of her face. So Long Pond, specifically, brings us back to the relatively early days of the pandemic, in which we got the Long Pond folklore sessions. Um, In the sadness of this autumn, the fact that this is a sad girl autumn, is in some ways a reflection on the pandemic and what it's taken away, particularly from young people. A reflection on the hot girl summer that never really happened. And interestingly, this recording, this this Long Pond recording, takes place in the present, in the sad autumn of 2021. Whereas I think we can say the short film ends in 2023. And a lot has been made of the fact that the captions say that 13 years are gone between the beginning and the end of the film, even though it's only been 11 years since she wrote the song. And part of that, for me, must be an acknowledgement that the kind of gathering it depicts still feels fraught. It imagines a future in which the pandemic is gone, in which you can gather in a dark room with strangers to hear Taylor perform. And I think especially because she goes into period detail in the first part, for example, giving Sadie Sink's character an older model of iPhone, I think we can safely assume that the scene depicted in the end does take place in the future, in a post-pandemic time. That might be a hint at when she might be thinking of starting to tour again. And again, you can find a lot of theories about this online, so... But in the Sad Girl Autumn version, she's alone, well, with Aaron Desner, you know, she's in a recording studio, she's not playing to to a live audience, and we get this very mediated recording of that, you know, with this black and white picture and these still photographs interposed, you know, this is very much not, not a big performance and not a live performance. Um, And then, of course, we get the SNL version, in which Taylor accompanies herself with a guitar and clips from the short film play in the background. And with the guitar, as well as her red lipstick, um, I think she's recognizably the Taylor from 1989 and the Reputation Tour, rather than the folklore Evermore Taylor that we see in the Long Pond version of All Too Well. Ladies and gentlemen, Taylor Swift. (laughs) 
And I think that this performance really, because probably it's being televised, really reflects also on sort of the intense mediation of of this performance itself and of this song. And in addition to clips from the film, from the short film being played in the background, the studio itself here becomes a kind of mimetic place. Leaves are on the ground and fall from the ceiling. Wind is in her hair at the end when she mentions that. And snow falls um, when she starts talking about snow, a kind of 4DX reenactment of the experiences described in the song. Of course, that we can't access, you know, because we're watching it on TV. We can't feel that wind in her hair, but we see that she feels it. And she really emphasizes the meta and multimedia aspects um, of this performance, glancing to the camera in close-up as close-ups of her actors play on the screen, and notably making a hand gesture at the mention of a late-night show, acknowledging that she she is on a late night show. And it's that line that I want to talk about for the rest of this episode. So in this particular line from the song, she accuses the ex of charming, quote, my dad with self-effacing jokes, sipping coffee like you're on a late night show, or indeed in a collaboration with Starbucks, but we'll set that aside. What does it mean to be on a late night show? And therefore, what does it mean to act like you're on a late night show? Ultimately, of course, this is kind of an affective thing. This refers to a kind of faked good cheer, a faux casual, relatable persona that you kind of put on. Let's talk specifically this though, about the medium of television, the idea of being televised, of performing yourself on television. As Walter Benjamin writes in The Work of Art in, the, in an Age of Mechanical Reproduction, the difference between theater and film acting has to do with the reality of shooting a film non-sequentially. The sequence of positional views which the editor composes from the material supplied him, Benjamin writes, constitutes the completed film. In other words, he goes on to explain, a jump from the window can be shot in the studio studio as a jump from a scaffold, and the ensuing flight, if need be, can be shot two weeks later, when outdoor scenes are taken. The illusionary nature of the movie scene, Benjamin explains, is the result of cutting. That is to say, in the studio, the mechanical equipment has penetrated so deeply into reality that its pure aspect, freed from the foreign substance of equipment, is the result of a special procedure namely the shooting by the specially adjusted camera and the mounting of the shot together with other similar ones. The equipment-free aspect of reality here has become the height of artifice. The sight of immediate reality has become an orchid in the land of technology. In other words, the film erases the burdensome way in which it was created, presenting an illusion of a single performance for multiple different performances at different times, unlike the theatrical performance, where if the actor jumps from a ledge, he has to hit the ground. He has to be the one to hit the ground. Philip Auslander argues that television was and still is understood as closer to theater than film in this respect, precisely because of what he calls an ontology of liveness. Television's essence was originally, he, he claims, seen in its ability to transmit events as they occur, because all television broadcasts were live transmissions. And even though this is no longer true, Auslander and other critics, he quotes, claim that Television is still perceived as in some way essentially live. Quote, the fact that television can go live at any moment to convey sight and sound at a distance in a way no other medium can remains a crucial part of the televisual imaginary, even though that way of using the medium is now the exception rather than the rule. Even though much television isn't actually live, much of it, including notably late night shows, 
is nonetheless taped before a live audience, and Auslander explains this, quote, The current practice of taping before a live studio audience is a simulation rather than a replication of the conditions of live theatrical production. The presence of the studio audience on the television screen and soundtrack implies that the program is a record of a real event. Because the programs are edited, however, the home audience does not see the same performance as the studio audience, but rather a performance that never took place. And Auslander argues that the very idea of liveness came into being in response to radio, a communications technology that, as he puts it, put the clear opposition of the live and the recorded into a state of crisis. The response to this crisis was a terminological distinction that attempted to preserve the formerly clear dichotomy between two modes of performance, the live and the recorded, a dichotomy that had been so self-evident up to that point that it did not even need to be named. So in other words, you didn't need this distinction between liveness and recorded sound because it was pretty obvious whether you were hearing something played, you know, in front of you or recorded and played, you know, on a gramophone. But this idea of liveness then leads to this oxymoronic phrase, recorded live. How can something, Auslander asks, be both recorded and live? Even though this is in some ways a contradiction, he notes that this is a concept we now accept without question. In the case of live recordings, the audience shares neither a temporal frame nor a physical location with the performers, but experiences the performance later and usually in a different place than it first occurred. The liveness of the experience of listening to or watching the recording is primarily affective. Live recordings allow the listener a sense of participating in a specific performance and a vicarious relationship to the audience for that performance, not accessible through studio productions. And so performance live, you know, in front of a live audience on a late night show is then a combination of liveness and mediation, a performance that never quite happened, but that nonetheless points to its liveness through the presence of an audience that is responding to it. And before the release of her album, Taylor appeared on several late night shows, and here she's talking to Jimmy Fallon about the short film she directed. There's a shot, I was going to say, this continuous shot around, I don't know. I so there ha- there's this scene where there is one very tense scene between the two of them. So well done. And they're, they were so electric and improving a lot of what they were doing that we just couldn't take the camera off them. We couldn't cut, we couldn't edit. So Why? there's a very long one take, one camera shot that I'm lasts for a very long time and you and when you're watching it you don't you don't note that you don't realize that because they are so magnetic they really are real i was like oh my god i'm so glad that you felt that too props i was like that was so good yeah and in fact in that scene that they're referring to you know the two characters her and him Uh, are arguing about the girl's invisibility, the way that she disappears when he starts performing for his friends, who she says are enthralled by him. You just treated me differently. What do you mean I treated you differently? You didn't even look at me once! What are you You talking about? I'm catching up with my friends! Trust me, they were enthralled by you, of course. I'm sorry, you're making the entire night about you! You didn't even look at me! Holy shit, holy shit, I can't. She becomes an unacknowledged listener, an audience that's not being played to. So what does it mean to talk to the people in your life as though you're on a late night show? It's an attitude towards life that's about 
not being alive, but being live, broadcasting a version of yourself that you think the audience wants to see. The woman in the all-too-well short film complains that her boyfriend drops her hand when he starts performing for his friends. This represents a refusal of the kind of constant, albeit somewhat destructive, attention that the song Willow asks for when Taylor says, I'm begging for you to take my hand, wreck my plans, that's my man. The hand here represents a willingness to engage with life, not just as a performance one is putting on, but as a participant, a willingness to be present. And when the boyfriend doesn't show up to her party in the 10 minute all too well, he betrays himself as someone incapable of showing up behind the scenes, of really being there. These versions of the song reflect on performance in the context of a sad autumn in which it is unclear to what extent we will be able to keep coming together, in fear of the constantly circulating and mutating virus that jumps from person to person. The song's intensely mediated performances in the short films Sad Girl Autumn and SNL versions reflect on the difficulties of actually being together, actually being present. Even as Taylor imagines different ways to perform the song, she asks us to project ourselves as audience to those future versions. If the book event at the end of the short film of All Too Well is the post-pandemic future, which Taylor rather optimistically estimates to be around 2023, we are all the man in the scarf waiting outside, an audience shut out of the warmth and brightness, stealing a glimpse at a closeness that may be lost to us forever. Anyway, thanks for listening to Studies in Taylor Swift. Send in questions or comments to studiesintaylorswift at gmail.com. You're listening to Happy Strumming by Audionautics. <laughs>